Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the MSHP podcast. Uh, had trouble getting that one out today. Uh, it's Rob Fields, um, Executive Vice President, Chief Population Health Officer here at Mount Sinai. Um, so I have a big group with me today. Uh, I have several colleagues that uh, have worked with me and others across the system to get remote monitoring up and going and have built out our digital solutions for connected devices. So I think it's a really interesting topic. And I've had several colleagues across the country that have asked about our program or are wondering how we started our program. So we thought it might be a good idea to get this group together. So I'm excited to share this time with them. Uh, I will start with, uh, you know, since this is an audio only podcast, you don't know that we're recording this on Zoom. So I'm looking at my the Brady Bunch square on the top left for me, and I'll just go down the line here. So uh, Ruchi, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Ruchi Tiwari. I'm the Executive Director of Pharmacy for Ambulatory and Pop Health. Really excited about this topic today. Awesome. Uh, Alex? Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Ingber. I am the Director of Clinical Integration uh, within Pop Health. Great. Daryl? Hello, everyone. Uh, Daryl Holler. I'm a Director on the Digital Health Team. Kathleen. Hi, everyone. My name is Kathleen Matthew. I'm a clinical pharmacy manager on the population health team. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. So it, it is a bigger group than our normal podcast. So hopefully folks will be able to keep track of, of who's who. Um, so I, I thought we'd start kind of with the landscape, right, of where we are with, you know, connected devices and, and remote monitoring. Generally, it's such a, a hot topic. Um, and I think it became really clear to us that we early on that we needed some sort of strategy based on, uh, you know, I think previous mistakes, honestly. And and I think, Daryl, I'll point to you first, but others, please chime in. You know, I, I know you were leading this initiative from the beginning of really developing a system approach to this. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the drivers uh, from a system perspective of why that was necessary and, and your your thoughts about starting this up. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a few years ago, we started to to see, you know, part of our digital health group was focused on telehealth. And we also started to see the need for, you know, just sustained um, interaction with patients in between visits. And we started to do proof concepts with um, at-home devices about two years ago. And, um, you know, when we, when we would speak to a department, you know, they would want to spin up uh, an RPM device initiative and while while it probably seems easier and quicker in a short run for a department to move forward separately with a vendor that's that has a, a program that's specialized for that disease state, it probably in the long run uses more resources. It's more costly. It's less efficient, and uh, you know it's just uh, more resource intensive for the enterprise. Um, so you know this leads to a lot of duplication and uh, creates a lot of infrastructure um overage for our for our system so there's multiple security assessments if you bring on multiple companies you have um each vendor requires an integration um each vendor has a legal agreement and contracting process and if they're going to bill they have to integrate you know with our billing teams and things like that so and then not to not not even to mention the the device logistics of shipping um items to patients um, and customer support, right? So you can imagine if a patient is in multiple, uh, they have an, an issue with hypertension, they have another issue with diabetes, if they have different 
hardware de delivered to their to their house and then have to into or, or deal with different customer support teams or vendors that can be a huge issue so we started to see early on that we would need a, a long-term enterprise strategy to try to solve this problem do you remember now looking back what kinds of devices folks were asking you about or wanting to integrate before we had a you know strategy and a governance structure it, it was kind of all over the place. You know, <laughs> many people were looking at the kits, you know, those all-in-one kits that, that right. could do everything. And, and and those are good. And sometimes the vendor, you know, they probably have a really streamlined process, but then you have to look at, you know, the vendor's ability to bring on new devices in the future, because, you know, this is such a, a new, hot, and or just quickly moving market that if a vendor focuses on specific devices, but they don't have a strategy to integrate new devices in 18 months, are they going to be able to work with that, that new thing that comes out um, mm -hmm. that we want? But it was kind of all over the place. We've had, um, you know, the standard ones, pulse ox, um, uh, blood pressure, but then there's also, you know, these smart vests for rehabilitation right. and um, bikes, you know, where people are riding on bikes. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, it's been pretty varied. But um, I think, you know, we're looking at a general vendor that would handle 50, 60, 70% of the use cases. And then what we want to build is an architecture that can handle additional, or we know we are going to need multiple vendors. Not one vendor has done everything. Right. So we have an architecture that's going to be able to accommodate multiple vendors. Yeah. But a small number of them. Right. Yeah. And I, and I know you started this work pre-pandemic. Yep. And then the pandemic hit. And I'm wondering yeah. if you might comment a little bit on how, what that did for, for your world. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, we started maybe a year before the pandemic. Um, and it was, it was, you know, Hey, this is good. This is great. You know, let's keep a proof of concept going. And, and this is good. Not much money allocated to it, <laughs> but you know, Hey, Daryl, keep, keep going doing what you're doing. But then once pandemic hit, it was initially everything was about telehealth, and then right on the heels of telehealth, it was all right. Let's get devices sent home, and and now it's I think going to evolve into just like a new line of business, which is um. So you know, all health systems are pushing forward on RPM, um, and um, yeah, it's really an intense focus right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to maybe if you can say a a couple words about the governance structure that that you set up. I, and I, I'm going to bet that we're going to come back to it a little bit later as we get deeper into the clinical model and, and other things. And But uh, can you speak a little bit to the importance of the governance structure, not only like the system, like arch architecture and that strategy, but also the government? Yeah. You know, I think for this, um, uh, executive leadership support is key. Um, and having a, having a Uber governance team that will, you know, and we have subcommittees, sub-governance teams that those subcommittees can can roll up into everything from IT to uh, data management, even legal and data use, and uh, even billing. You know, everything can roll up into this one Uber governance committee. I think that's key. You have to have that, and you have to have executive su support to put um, to put teeth behind some of those decisions. Because especially if you do get those those requests coming in from different departments. And we have to push back on the department to say, we don't want to bring on a new vendor. We already have a vendor that can do that. We already have a device that does what you want to do. Then you need, you know, that executive support to be able to, to push back on those, on those efforts that may go against what the enterprise strategy is. Right. Yeah. And we've certainly had a, f a few examples like that along the way, for sure. Yeah.
Um, you know, I feel I'm, I'm, I know I'm biased, but I think one of the things on top of all the things that Daryl, that you just said in terms of having a strategy from the outset, the, uh, a plan around the architecture and the governance, all those things that are so important. One of the things that I think differentiates the model here at Sinai from others and, and that are one of the things I maybe perhaps selfishly wanted to share with, with others is, is the clinical model. And so I'm, I would love to, you know, hear from, from Richie and Alex and Kathleen about, you know, thoughts in the early days and how that's evolved. And, um, I don't want to give too much away here, but whoever wants to start. I can kick us off. We were, um, Daryl was talking about from the IT perspective of the pandemic and the changes that sort of ensued. And um, I can kick us off from the perspective of the clinical service lines and how, how things changed and then therefore how we sort of evolved to support um, with what we call condition management. Uh, so I guess early in the pandemic, we, this team had always been supporting patients you know, with regular in, in-person visits. And it's always, we had a bit of a tr- trouble and struggle both from the provider side and also the patient side with just converting patients to more effective use of um, telehealth services. Like, I, I don't know if it was like a touch of the, a difference in medical quality or just, um, you know, just offering the services was, was not like part of our DNA. Um, and the efficiency of launching those type of visits was not there. So um, obviously the pandemic halted our normal inpatient operations and all of us quickly shifted to uh, only living and breathing <laughs> Zoom and telehealth right. visits with patients. Right. And so that was a complete flip, but then it also forced us to be a lot more comprehensive with that virtual care model, right? So it had to be a lot more efficient. It had to, we had to be able to um, uh, provide on a nice platter all of the clinical services that we used to do in-house, but now in the patient's home. So in we this team quickly went from like, you know, some phone call-based activity to uh, focusing on the patient experience and um, serving up video visits as well as an ancillary staff, which is um, in addition to the provider visits, we wanted to be able to, to provide the same experience with giving and seeing patients in their home, being able to see their medi- medi- medication models on, on Zoom, et cetera. But then the last part we had to solve for was the physiological data that was completely missing until we were able to serve up remote patient monitoring, um, which is, it was, a, this is a, a complete game changer for how our clinical teams have been working with patients remotely and in their homes throughout the pandemic. Um, yeah. in, in, you know, in a past podcast, Richie, you uh, were kind enough to spend some time and talk about the, the clinical pharmacy model in general and, and the role of a clinical pharmacist. We had a uh, uh, John Aaron also comment on how, as a primary care physician, how he experienced that. Um, Kathleen, I wonder if, if you might chime in from, you know, you were, as Richie was describing, you were in the clinics providing care, in sort of pre-RPM. I wonder if you can speak a little bit to, a little bit about what that was like for you and then how RPM sort of changed that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I would say that to Richie's point, this is exactly what we were doing um, as ambulatory care clinical pharmacists, providing support for chronic disease management in between physician visits. Um, so for example, for hypertension, a lot of our visits were focused on obtaining this data of of their home blood pressure readings, et cetera. And even for our visits, um, the challenges that we faced was one, no show rate. So in difficulty for patients to get to the clinic. Um, so one thing that definitely was enhanced from a telehealth model and remote patient monitoring is the ability to enhance patient access to care by meeting patients where they're at. I think that's the biggest thing that we've gotten from here. And then particularly for hypertension or providing devices like blood pressure cups, oftentimes it's not covered by insurance. Oftentimes patients have to bring in their logs, which they'll forget right. different true. things that slow down that process. And then in combination with clinical inertia, there's just a lot of different factors that can keep a patient where they're at. So with the use of remote patient monitoring, I think it's really enhanced the patient experience on our end and is but then also optimizing technology, it's allowed us to be able to do our jobs more efficiently as well. So when we're meeting with the patient, we've already got, you know, X number of days of data and trends, which is really what's needed to optimize clinical decision-making for both ourselves and then for the physicians. Yeah, no, that, and, you know, maybe a little bit later on, we can, there are a, a couple examples of situations that we've that kind of speak to a lot of the things that you guys have um, have described. I mean, I I think for those that haven't listened to that other podcast, you know, our our pharmacists have collaborative practice agreements with their primary care and specialty um, colleague physician colleagues, and then you know are are you know recommending and sometimes prescribing uh, medications as part of that agreement. And so that's really uh, I think kind of sped up their, their goal here right, is to speed up the this normal cycle of disease management right to get folks to clinical goal faster um i wonder you know if uh, any of you alex or anyone wanted to speak to the growth in the program so you know we had the pharmacy programs that helped right because folks were knew the pharmacists already had a relationship rpm starts from zero and it, it kind of grew i don't know if anyone wants can speak a little bit to the the growth and what what is driving that? Alex, you care to? Sure. So, um, Rob, as you mentioned, the clinical pharmacists were already embedded in some of our primary care practices. Uh, we really worked with where the pharmacists had a strong relationship with the primary care providers already had a rhythm and a relationship built for managing these chronic conditions in collaboration with the physicians. And then as we started to gain a lot of traction, uh, see a lot of um, anecdotal uh, success in getting patients to goal and uh, wanting to spread the program, we moved to a more centralized model so that we could accommodate more growth. Uh, being able to accept referrals for patients that may benefit from the remote patient monitoring technology across the system, across multiple uh, primary care sites that didn't have an established relationship with a physician so they can learn how to use this technology partner with a new provider type and really collaborate together. And that centralized model allowed the growth to, I would say, grow exponentially, you know, um, within one year, uh, you know, enrolling 
up to about 500 patients. And uh, the trajectory of growth is really strong, both because of the individual clinical work, but also the structure and um, growing those relationships with primary care and specialty across the system. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder if um, any of you would like to comment on if you had it to do over again, what would you do differently? Either, and this is for anyone, you know, uh, anyone on the team here, either from the architecture side, clinical model side, anything, any lessons learned? I think very quickly we saw the need for a centralized model, probably just that, that would be something that I would consider. So for some context, all the clinical pharmacists pre-pandemic, of course, were embedded in different pharmacy clinics. And so being able to then have the pharmacists cover larger practices from a centralized model, I would probably say having that developed from the start, um, really yeah. then being able to understand the growth that we've seen exponentially throughout the year um, would, would definitely help. Yeah. And I, I feel like we should explain that a little bit more. So the pharmacists were like uh, attached and associated with specific high high risk practices. And then it was like wildfire when we went live with RPM. Yeah. People heard about it through the provider engagement team and um, all of the great activity that the digital health team was um, sort of announcing and explaining about RPM and leadership level as well. And then we just had an inbound request of like, when are we going to do this at our clinic um, over and over? And Alex, you're at the helms of that, like trying to slow down, like expectations. <laughs> of what expectations right. Yeah. But um, from a technology perspective, you know, Daryl was so helpful and in, in helping us understand that we can't just like refer patients into our no normal pharmacist workflow because it required like, 18 different steps to get right. a clinic live with remote patient monitoring and loading all of those physicians into a new, like, um, into the, the digital tools and the, the IT EMR tools and right. the interfacing pieces. So, you know, Daryl, you can speak to more of that, but we quickly realized that it was just so hard for a physician that was outside, um, you know, from cardiology or geriatrics, et cetera, to just quickly refer a patient to us. And during pandemic, we realized that was that was a no-go. We needed to fix that immediately. Um, I just yeah. want to contextualize that big challenge. <laughs> yeah, and, and even from, you know, that and, and even from other technology aspects, I think, um, and maybe we couldn't really change this too much because we were in a pandemic, but having more um, fully allocated resources technology resources for the rpm initiative and it may have been partially because was, we were in a pandemic state um we were kind of borrowing time uh, mm -hmm. from technology resources and it's like hey can you can you help build this out for us and it was on top of what they were their right. normal nine to five was right. so right. you know if we would have had more dedicated resources then i think this could have been the technology part could have happened in a more streamlined way yeah that's all very, very helpful. There, there are a couple of things that, you know, I, I know when I speak about our program to others that I'm particularly proud of, and one is the approach on the technology side, uh, where uh, we, we know that, and we'll come back to this actually a little bit in terms of 
adding devices and interfaces and things like that. But but we started with a fairly simple model. And I wonder if any of you might speak a little bit to the ability to have almost anyone participate in this from a technology perspective. And I wonder if anyone wants to comment a bit on, on that. Go ahead, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could take a stab at this. And, you know, we, we wanted to put together a framework that, um, where we, we could accept as many devices as possible and then also give the flexibility where we could have, you know, for every patient mix, you know. So if we had patient mixes that you didn't think were going to be very technically savvy and they may not have infrastructure in the home or Wi-Fi in the home, we could have devices that were pre-configured, um, have Bluetooth integration from the vendor such that all when they're and it's shipped to the patient's home such that once they receive it, all they have to do is really plug it in, start using it, data flows over to us. That's a little bit more costly, but that was definitely one of the models that we wanted to support going forward. And, you know, there's other models as well, bring your own device. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, it's it maybe a little bit secondary, but we want to support that as well. But, you know, we wanted to make sure that we could support as many devices as possible, the different patient cohorts, cohorts or mixes, and then, you know, um, also, like I said before, multiple vendors, because we haven't seen that one vendor fits all. And there's a lot of consolidation in the market or going to be new vendor entrants in the market over the next few years. So, you know, you look for that one vendor that could be your enterprise vendor, quote unquote, that does a lot of it. And then you have your special use case vendors, you know, even cardiology has implantables that the general RPM vendor is not going to be able to, to, to support there. But yeah, you know, um, and then now the challenge is the devices, we had the standard devices initially, um, blood pressure, weight, things like that. And then now we want to start to move into continuous devices that do continuous data, um, glucose meters and other things like that. So we're going to have different data types coming in, different storage needs. And one of the real big things that we identified early on was having data flow into one central storage place. Mm -hmm. Because if every department did their own thing, right. every department would have their own place to store their data. And then analyzing that data would be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. You know, presumably, uh, the, as folks are kind of getting a hint, we, we started with hypertension and we've taken a, a little bit of a dive in heart failure as well. You know, presumably these patients with hypertension, most of them were not newly diagnosed. They had had hypertension for some time and weren't well controlled. And I'm um, uh, you know, I wonder if Ruchi or Kathleen in particular, but Alex as well, maybe as, as we were engaging with patients, what did we find? Like, what is it about these folks that, that maybe this was a better solution? You know, uh, do, if, I hope I'm answering or asking that question correctly. You know, wh why weren't they in control before and why would this be better for them? I think in the context of hypertension management specifically, mm -hmm. you know, having the trends and being able to make decisions off of the trends using remote patient monitoring really helped. Um, but then I think something else we noticed, particularly with our patients, is that patients that we didn't expect to be as engaged necessarily, maybe looking at their um clinic visit data, et cetera, we're actually very engaged. And most of our patients are very engaged in the program testing pretty much every day. And I think that's the aspect of multiple things. So one, the device is being easy to use, being able to have that education, not needing any additional technology um, for particularly for right. hypertension, blood pressure cuff devices. 
Um, and then patients having that regular engagement with a pharmacist or with the clinician in between their visits, I think that aspect has helped patients stay motivated and engaged and adherent to their medications and just generally to their care plans. And the feeling of having a team members or others taking care, knowing that they're monitoring their readings, I think has really helped. Um, so I think that's one big aspect of it. And then and our just disenrollment having, rate was, you guys said the yeah, other day was 2%, which is yeah, crazy. It's quite low. It's about 2%. So most patients per month have stayed regularly engaged. And then I think it's the aspect of the surveillance or the monitoring as well. Not only are we focusing on your blood pressure readings, we're taking a look at the medications and the whole medical picture as a whole. And as a result, with remote monitoring, we've seen other issues that may have not come up until a doctor's right. visit or even sooner. So I think that that regular engagement has really helped a lot of patients um, be able to maybe reach goal or, or these different things where they weren't uncontrolled before and now are, are maintaining control. Yeah. And, and Kathleen, you've also like, you know, shared examples where patients are just super energized by the fact that they're, they're using their devices. All of a sudden the data is like on in Kathleen's like view and that's like exciting for them to see that mm -hmm. their clinical team is connected that way. I, I can't really um, uh, quantify that, but it, it seems to like really, we think about, um, you know, just adherence so much, right? When we right. think about medication adherence and then to see this device adherence is remarkable how, how frequently they like test on a daily basis or, um, you know, month over month over month. And I think there's something about just like that really close connectivity with the clinical teams um, that, you know, Kathleen, you've given me specific feedback from patients. So that's really cool. Yeah. And I think considering the fact that remote patient monitoring from a billing perspective is primarily a Medicare-based service, you mm -hmm. wouldn't think that these patients right. may not be interested in technology or, or find it very time-consuming or cumbersome, et cetera. But I think once they get on board and engage and realize it's easy to use. There is that novelty of when I ask a patient to take their reading over the phone during my visit to say, oh, I got your reading, it's this. And they kind of see that real time that it's coming into their chart and we're able to act on it um, has really helped. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, this, speaking of the engagement piece, I think both of you mentioned at one point uh, or the other, the the onboarding and and education of patients, the how and how important that is, probably contributes to our low disenrollment rate. Um, you know, Alex, I wonder if you might speak a little bit to the role of the navigator on our team as opposed to the pharmacist and how that helps with all of that and our efficiency. And then maybe uh, you or, or or anyone on the team speak a little bit on the uh, the texting sort of nudge piece that we added in later in the program. Sure, I think that the patient navigators are a crucial component of this program and add a level of engagement uh, that patients don't normally see. So it's an ability for someone to have some dedicated time to reach out to the patient, explain the ins and outs of the program, what is the responsibility of the patient, the responsibility of the clinical care team, what the expectations are, what they're hoping the patient gets out of the program, um, as well as continued engagement as check-ins, some uh, lifestyle education, and just an ability to help them navigate any questions they may have, both from a 
technology standpoint, as well as um, wanting to get an appointment and helping them really uh, work through all the aspects of the program. And I think having someone that they feel that they can both proactively reach out to and knowing that someone will check in with them from a non-clinical perspective and just see how they're feeling about continuing to enroll in the program, um, if they have any issues with co-pays or just really making sure that they're having a seamless experience is an added layer of right. this um, engagement that we see with some other programs, but I think enhances um, the, the overall experience and motivates patients to kind of put that same level of effort back into their care. Yeah. And then it, if you, you or others can, can speak a little bit to the addition of the texting and how we use it and how that's helped or not, I guess, <laughs> you could, leading the witness here a little bit. I, I can kick us off a little bit talking about the intention and then others, please feel free to jump in about some anecdotal experiences that you've had. But the intention is to also give patients an, um, another avenue that uh, allows them to engage with both our patient navigators and our care team. So the goal of this texting will allow patients to feel congratulated when they take their first reading or feel as though someone is actually engaging with them when they enroll and giving them that extra boost of encouragement, but it also does the opposite. So um, as someone becomes a little bit more disengaged and misses a couple of days of readings, it's a friendly reminder to um, check in and see what is happening. Are Is their device broken? Are they forgetting and just need reminders? And so this texting prompts them to choose um, different responses that will lead them down different pathways and give them either materials to read that will remind them on proper blood pressure taking technique or actually connect them to a live person if they have questions that they want to talk through in real time. And so that texting and that chat will allow them to get immediate responses so that they can either change their behavior or um, be able to find a solution to something outside the scope of uh, the major challenges or successes that we see in the program. Is it working? Yeah, I think patients have really appreciated just another avenue to be able to connect to their care team. So from our clinical team perspective, we are monitoring daily. There is that asynchronous action as well. Of if we see something, we're reaching out to the patient. But here, to Alex's point, when someone becomes disengaged, or there might be a reason why um, patients have the ability to connect to a live navigator. Um, and so we've seen in instances, patients connecting to reach out to schedule different appointments, to describe or ask questions about their blood pressure devices. And um, so being able to, again, enhance access to the care team via technology. And this is just another layer of that through our, our program to make sure patients feel that they also have the option to reach out to us directly without having to go through multiple phone lines and stand hold and wait for a call back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, we think that the consumer digital layer that we added you know, first we added our navigators to our team, which greatly in enhanced um, the pharmacist efficiencies and the conversations they were able to have. Quite frankly, they're just excellent at customer service and having conversations about things that matter that relate to healthcare and then not relate to healthcare, right? right. So right. they're just really good at that part and in, in keeping patients engaged. 
But then we quickly realized even the navigators need some um, really important support, uh, which the consumer digital layer added. So it makes their workflows efficient and um, that the patients have flexibility with engaging with us when they want to. And they so want to. Right. that's really cool that they're able to live request a live conversation and right. our navigators have this console up. They're ready to like jump on and address um, the patient that they've had a constant relationship with um, immediately. And that that's really, really, really um, amazing as a capability that we're able to stand up during the pandemic. Um, in addition to all of these other tools with remote, remote patient monitoring and just having like the data um, for a clinician, but then to have like all of this information and the workflow solved for for an engagement layer was is just remarkable that we were able to stand up. Yeah. Um, so that's really helped us, and I think patients like that a lot as well. Yeah, it seems like it based on the the growth and the feedback. Um, as we're you know maybe starting to to wrap up here. Uh, you mentioned earlier earlier about bring your own devices. So you know we we have focused primarily on hypertension, heart failure, and I think as we mentioned, have an eye out for for diabetes and other and other programs uh, and devices. But there is the seemingly overwhelming influx of you know connectivity as it relates to home devices that folks just have a Garmin watch, Fitbit, whatever. How, what what are you thinking there? What's uh, from a technology perspective? <laughs> Yeah, and the uh, excuse me. The the other thing is that these devices that were more traditionally considered consumer based at home devices, they're starting to get more and more clinical every day. Mm -hmm. You know, you're starting to see these devices that have FDA approved sensors in them. You know, Apple Watch is rumored to have some things coming out. You know, so it, the lines are starting to blur. Um, yeah. But you know, as much as possible, you know, if we can. The strategy now is to send out devices that are fully integrated that we can control. But you know, we do want to have a strategy and look for a partner like an Apple Health Kit that that can integrate with um, many devices that are that a consumer may have uh, and, and and ingest that data. And then the the challenge on our side is that we have to bring in we have to bring in information from different sources and be able to mash that together in one data store such that we can display it to the providers and then analyze it. But, um, but yeah, you know, and then some of these consumer traditionally consumer based devices, sometimes those vendors we're at the mercy of those vendors and, uh, mm -hmm. and as to how open those vendors are going to be, you know, d does the consumer have to create an account at the, the vendors um, right. portal first in order for them to send the data to us or can we integrate more directly with the device right so it's a lot of challenges layers there. of complexity yeah 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 and I, as a as a provider you know that i know we've talked about this internally is how much do the physicians and clinical teams really want to see you know uh from these at-home devices do they want to really literally see how much sleep i had or not sleep or <laughs> you know or steps uh on a daily right. basis probably not right so yeah and we have to look at it right right whatever we collect you know yeah that's like right said, somebody's got to look at it and yeah that's right and um you know even the discussion you had earlier just about the um automated communications you know as much as we can have rules-based processing to, you know, whether it's alerting the providers, alerting the patients to things to make them more efficient or more engaged. 
it helps. Like you said, it could be very overwhelming at times. Yeah, no doubt. Well, my, my last question for each of you, I just go down the line again. So, um, is you know, what you're most looking forward to and as it even maybe loosely as it relates to RPM, but you know, around this type of delivery in general, uh, remote monitoring and beyond, uh, when you think about the future, what are you most excited about? I probably won't call on you. I'll just sort of see who wants to go first if somebody has an immediate answer. And I'll edit this pause out here in a little bit. You know, um, what, one thing that I've been um, really interested in is just the way that the devices are hopefully going to become more passive um, and smaller in nature so that users may not even know that they're being monitored, you know, at some point. Well, they know they consent, right. they know and they consent, but it's not like they have to put it on it's not every an intrusion. day. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, they, you know, things are, some of the things that, that are being worked on are, are so cool. They have these things called smart tattoos, you know, um, wow, you, really? it's actually a design that you could put on your body. Um, um, Harvard and MIT are, are working on this. Now it's very early on, early stages, but eventually it could be something that's a piece of jewelry wow. or, or a design statement, and that's going to be able to 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 detect something about your body. You know, um, wow. so wow. it's really interesting as to where we could go in the next five, ten years or so. Yeah, that's crazy. Others? Yeah, I'm excited about continuing to use this type of technology and other technologies to help impact and reduce health disparities that we see, especially mm -hmm. in New York City. Um, to be able to offer devices to patients that they don't need anything extra in terms of technology has been mm -hmm. so valuable and rewarding to us, especially when we're focusing on our high-risk patients. I'm particularly excited about our program that we'll be um, offering for our maternity population, um, specifically to consider um, any impact that we can make on maternal mortality and those outcomes as well. Yeah, that's a big one. Richie? Oh, go ahead, Alex. Somebody go. <laughs> I think um, a lot more in the immediate future is um, something that I'm really looking forward to is um, as part of the care standardization and this condition management work, um, really making this kind of the minimum level of engagement and minimum level of standard practice. So really making sure it's as widespread, accessible, and integrated into our standard processes as possible, because I think it's a technology that from a provider side is um, a huge enhancement with minimal, um, minimal lift, as well as for the patient side, increasing access. So uh, just integrating it into our care standardization and uh, making everyone think of Mount Sinai and thinking of remote technologies, um, digital solutions, and having those things be synonymous. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I'm excited about a lot of it, but uh, mostly excited about being able to like really hotspot our population and pull in the right people that are just about just indicating some sort of risks or predictive mm -hmm. risks about to have an event and pulling them into these programs and and I think they exist in every subspecialty out there. Yeah. So we, it would be great to be able to, you know, soon have this condition management team um, be able to intake from, you know, 
be able to surveil oncology or you know, all of the cardiology patients and um, appropriately support with with those subsets of population because right. um, they all they all need a little bit of support and so right, therefore right. the new devices that we can integrate is really exciting. I have to slow down my expectations to make sure no, that workflows are ready, but it, it's all very very exciting because we'll finally be able to support patients in ambulatory the way we ought to to care for patients in their homes and um, asynchronously and longitudinally throughout their lives. Yeah. And so it's sort of the big pop health challenge, I think, right? Like we're, we are uh, accountable in some ways to take large groups of people, hundreds of thousands of people, literally, and, uh, you know, trying to identify you know, who are, who needs help and who doesn't, who wants help and who doesn't and what, and then try to match that to the specific sub-segment. I mean, it's, it's just operationally and logistically a huge challenge, but I think as all of you have mentioned this, this process, this technology has really gone a long way to kind of meet people where they are in lots of ways. So uh, really proud of this team and in this crew. I'm glad we got a chance to share a bit about um, what you guys have built um, and thank you for your time. Thanks, Rob. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Uh, see you next time.